Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds, which today is a special Medical Grand Rounds because it's also the part of the 16th Annual Dartmouth Conference on Liver, Pancreas, and Biliary Diseases. Today's focus being on interventions in pancreatic and biliary disease. Today's speaker is a major authority in this area, a friend and colleague I've known for a long time, uh, a friend and colleague of Tim Gardner's who will in a moment introduce him. Because of his expertise, of course, he's sought after as a consultant from several companies, and he's disclosed a consulting relationship with Olympus, Boston Scientific, Cook Medical, and Medtronic. And you'll see why, because he's involved in the cutting edge of, of therapeutic endoscopy, and people want to know his opinion on variety, various device development, and you'll hear about that. Tim, who's about to introduce him to you, is our wonderful colleague who is the GI Fellowship Director now. He's an Associate Professor in the GI section of the Department of Medicine. He's the Medical Director of the Pancreatic Auto Islet Cell Transplant Program and so many other things. Tim, please come tell us about Todd Barron. Oh, one other housekeeping thing. To get CME credit for today, the login as you text it is 52 small j small f 52 small j small f and it's posted over there in the corner great well thank you everybody and uh, thanks rich for uh, for the introduction and um it's really my pleasure to welcome everyone here to our 16th annual conference um which is really kind of a highlight of the year for many of us in gi and certainly for me so it's really a pleasure to have to have you here um, in a moment, I'm going to introduce Todd Barron, but before I do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Hans Fromm, who, who uh, unfortunately passed away from pancreatic cancer in uh, 2006, uh, at the age of 66, and he was a mentor to many of us here, uh, and really a wonderful, wonderful man who actually started this conference uh, back 16 years ago. So this lecture that uh, Dr. Barron's about to give is in honor of and named after uh, Dr. Fromm, and here's a picture of uh, Hans and his wife Sharon, a picture of Hans when he was here, and of his uh, two children, uh, Chris and Marty, one of whom is a physician. Uh, so it's with great pleasure that uh, you know we, we have this lecture named after Hans. And uh, I'm really excited that we have our, our next speaker. So let me tell you a little bit about Todd Barron. Uh, for those of you uh, who don't know Todd Barron, Todd Barron is probably the most famous endoscopist in the world. Um, he is a world famous uh, person who everyone wants to have come speak to them. And so I'm really delighted that, that he, he's here. I got to know Todd when I was at the Mayo Clinic and he was just one of the forces there that everyone wanted to work with. So we're really, really lucky to have him here. Um, I went through Todd's 256-page CV last night and uh, learned that he, he's a Floridian. Actually, he and I were born in the same hospital in Danbury, Connecticut. I found that out today. Um, he did his training at uh, UAB uh, and uh, was on staff at UAB and the Mayo Clinic for 20 years or so and is currently, uh, for the last three years, at the University of North Carolina where he's the Director of Therapeutic Endoscopy and a Professor of Medicine. Um, as I said, it was 256 pages long. I think I lost track of the publications after about 500. Uh, the two textbooks that he's written, the four New England Journal of Medicine articles, the numerous uh, visiting professorships, um, and, and really I don't think there's a more famous endoscopist in the world than uh, Todd Barron. And so he's not only an incredibly talented 
physician, uh, but he's also an incredibly nice guy and friend. And I will say this about Todd, you know, when I went out to Mayo Clinic, you hear about these famous people who write all these articles and you say, well, these guys never see patients. And I can tell you that Todd sees patients. In fact, he did nine endoscopies yesterday, came in on a late flight. So he's a guy who practices what he preaches. So it's great pleasure to have uh, my friend, Dr. Todd Barron, come and uh, speak to you uh, today. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, as a uh, product of uh, parents who never went to college, my mom said she always wanted me to go to an Ivy League school, so at least I've got that here today. Um, <laughs> the, um, but uh, um, Tim was, um, as he said, I uh, met him when he came to Mayo, and it was obvious to all of us the year that he was there that he was going to produce great things and we're obviously very proud of what he's done uh, both personally and professionally. So um, actually this is not going to be your typical uh, Grand Rounds talk. Really I'm going to try to make this almost uh, entertaining but also sort of give you an open mind as to some of the possibilities um, that are there. So um, as an overview uh, the world of flexible endoscopy, specifically flexible endoscopy for gastrointestinal disease, has changed really in a dramatically short period of time um, in my perspective. And uh, many physicians are unaware of what can be done in therapeutic endoscopy. I mean, it, it's probably the same for me. I'll talk to a colleague in urology or cardiology or some other specialty of medicine, and they'll tell me what they're doing, and, I'm, and I say, Really, you can do that? I, I had no idea you could do that. And I think it's probably in some ways very similar uh, that a lot of people don't know what we can potentially do in, in therapeutic endoscopy. And I think most importantly is the last slide is there might be somebody in the audience today who will be inspired to change the field of endoscopy. I actually had no idea uh, when I was sitting in a medical grand rounds what my subspecialty was going to be. Uh, I walked in, and I think about this all the time, is what if I had missed medical grand rounds that day and somebody had invited uh, Peter Cotton. And if anybody knows who Peter Cotton is, he was really one of the pioneers in pushing um, ERCP. Thank goodness he was giving an uplifting ERCP talk at that time because if those of you who know him later, he talked about all the gloom and doom and all the downsides of ERCP. But at that time... I sat in there, had no idea what ERCP was. Um, the, the lecture finished. Uh, I went outside the auditorium. There were no cell phones then. I called my wife and I said, I just figured out what I'm going to do with my life. So uh, there might be somebody in the audience today that has and may be inspired to do something um, with this. Now, what's interesting, I think, when I, when I thought about this is the world, uh, even when I was a medical student, uh, was you had internists and surgeons, and um, that really the two of these historically were literally worlds apart, worlds and worlds apart. But as surgery has become uh, more minimally invasive with more laparoscopic techniques, and endoscopy has obviously come, become very, very in invasive, um, instead of us being worlds apart, 
were actually probably back to back with each other. Um, and I think that's one thing to take home is that really when we push the envelope of, envelope of therapeutic endoscopy, really it's, we are doing in some ways what would be considered surgery as internists. And I would be um, remiss if I didn't mention um, Basil Hershowitz. My life actually is quite interesting because it's, it's been very, very random. I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham um, to do internal medicine with no idea, again, that I was even going to do GI because it wasn't there until I even discovered it. But little did I know right there in front of me was the founder of fiber optic endoscopy. So Basil Hershowitz, uh, who passed away a few years ago, I'm probably one of the few remaining living people in, in the world that, that actually trained with uh, Basil Hershowitz, who really uh, was the founder of fiber optic endoscopy. And this picture, if you think about it, is so far how we've come, and that is um, he was one of the, he was basically the first person to recognize that light follows uh, fiber bundles. Uh, and so fiber optic endoscopy was what he developed uh, in the 1960s. And interestingly, Basil Hershowitz uh, did it because he was a peptic ulcer, um, he studied peptic ulcer disease. He was an acid peptic ulcer guy. And he really developed endoscopy as a way to study peptic ulcer disease and not actually to do anything uh, therapeutic. But it really, the world began, uh, I, I believe, at least in where we are today and where we're going. So from a personal perspective, uh, I began my fellowship training in 1990. And what I recall, I thought about this. I said, what, what, did, what was therapeutic endoscopy when I was a fellow? What did we do? Well, we did basic hemostasis, which really consisted of injection of epinephrine through a needle. Uh, I don't even recall the first year or two that we had any sort of devices that we could stop bleeding. So we would just inject huge volumes of epinephrine and hope that we would get bleeding to stop. And for uh, varices, for variceal bleeding, we were still doing sclerotherapy, band ligation, uh, had not actually hit the market yet until I think late uh, the following year, uh, of course, we did colonoscopic polypectomy, but in those days, the types of polyps that we all removed that we thought were big were really nothing compared to what we're doing now. Uh, we, were do, we did put peg tubes in. We thought that was really way out there. And ERCP was, at least in my training, extremely rudimentary, that we could basically take out some stones, and that was about it. So with that in mind, um, I'm going to really, the, most of my presentation today is going to be examples and videos of cases um, that we've done some creative things with. And this is one of my um, uh, more favorite uh, quotations uh, from Einstein because I'm not nearly as smart as he is. So I, but m imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited and imagination encircles the world. And really, a lot of not only what we're doing on an evidence-based way had to come from somebody's imagination, of course, but some of the cases I'm going to show you are really things that um, define sometimes what we do in therapeutic endoscopy, which is try to figure it out um, as we're doing cases and challenging. Now, many of you have probably seen this paper. If you haven't, you really need to incorporate this into your talks because this is great because everybody wants to hit us with evidence-based medicine 
And this was a study that was actually published in the British Medical Journal in 2003, which looked at parachute use to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge. It was a systematic review of the randomized controlled trials. And as you can imagine, they couldn't, they couldn't find a randomized controlled trial that parachute prevented gravitational injury. But I like what they, what they, um, they summarized, what was known about the topic. Parachutes are widely used to prevent death and major injury. Uh, parachute use is associated with adverse effects due to failure of the intervention and iatrogenic injury. And their studies of free fall don't show 100% mortality. So it is possible to survive without a parachute. And there are adverse effects. Whoops. What happened to my? Uh, OK, there it is. And there were no randomized controlled trials that they could find of parachute versus no parachute. So the basis for parachute use is purely observational. And its apparent efficacy could be explained by a healthy cohort effect. And individuals that insist that all interventions need to be validated by randomized controlled trials need to come down to earth with a bump. So this is actually one of my uh, favorite studies uh, of, of sort of what I do. So um, before we get into the, uh, to the videos, um, I always like to have a disclaimer as to uh, not to try this at home. So I'm going to just start out with giving you a series of cases that we'll talk through that we were able to manage um, endoscopically. So the first case is a case of a guy who actually lived in what was called the Charter House, which is right next to the Mayo Clinic, um, who presented uh, with a complete colonic obstruction. He was in his 90s, and he showed up into the emergency room with a colonic obstruction, and on CT had a four and a half centimeter stone impacted in his sigmoid colon. And uh, the way it got there is that this stone eroded through the gallbladder directly in through the hepatic flexure and got stuck in his sigmoid colon. So the surgeons called me and said, well, probably the only thing we're going to be able to do for him would be a diverting ostomy, which we may never be able to take down. What, what could you potentially do for this gentleman? So what you're seeing here is this four and a half centimeter stone that's wedged in the sigmoid uh, colon. And what we're doing is um, we're doing extra, uh, um, um, we're doing electrohydraulic lithotripsy, which is basically generating a shock wave through this probe in order to try to fragment this stone. And this is something that we do in the bile duct, uh, but we generally aren't dealing with four and a half centimeter stones. And generally what happens is that the stone will eventually blow apart. So you'll get fragments. Um, and what, what you'll find out what was happening, and I'll, what, what I'll show you, is that while I was chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at this stone, in fact, it wasn't fragmenting the stone. It was just creating a hole sort of down the middle of the stone. So as I'm doing this case, I had tried all kinds of things. I had actually was able to get a guide wire above this stone and, and grab an occlusion balloon and try to pull this stone down. But it was so impacted and wedged in the sigmoid colon, that didn't work. So I kept boring a hole through the middle, uh, trying to hope that this thing all of a sudden would, would uh, blow apart. 
So you can see, it, again, it sort of created more of a, uh, a funnel uh, type effect here again, saying, well, maybe we've, we can, uh, again, try to grab this thing and work around it and move it. And you can see he has stool coming around it intermittently because, again, he's completely obstructed. Uh, we inflated a balloon inside. Uh, this is a, um, a stone retrieval balloon that we use for stones in the bile duct. Again, it wouldn't come down. Uh, by this time, I think we had used our third or fourth probe that we kind of blew up because they, they have a limited lifespan on these uh, probes. And so, again, we went back to work and back to work to try to break this thing up. And, um, uh, again, it never quite fragmented. So, we, we, again, we get, we're thinking, okay, what can we do that's innovative here? What can we do that's, that's different? And so, eventually... What we found was that we probably made a hole through the middle of the stone that was still wedged in there. Uh, Tim would recognize this as a Sahendra Strew extractor to try to drill our way through the middle of this uh, impacted stone. Uh, meanwhile, there are 15 patients waiting to be seen um, <laughs> in the clinic. And they're like, what, what is Baron doing in there? And so, uh, eventually, we were actually able to get a guide wire through, um, we did more lithotripsy, sorry about that. So I'll fast forward a little bit, and eventually I was able to get a guide wire through the middle of the stone, and I said, let's implode the stone from the inside. So now what you're actually seeing is a, a dilating balloon. So these are balloons that are used to really um, dilate strictures and create a fair amount of force as opposed to the balloon that I showed you before. And eventually we blow, blew the stone up from the inside. So we imploded it uh, from the inside to break it apart, which we finally did. And getting the fragments out, you can see this is the waste. This is the stone around it. That was the waste of the balloon that blew out. So we're actually able to retrieve the stone fragments. Uh, but what was even more interesting after we retrieved the stone fragments um, is that we could drive uh, up the right, up to the right colon and into the gallbladder uh, because he had, so here we are actually with the endoscope in the right colon and injecting through the remnant of the gallbladder. There really is no stone left because he eva evacuated his entire gallbladder contents into the right colon. So again, we were able to save this gentleman in operation. Now having said that, Again, the surgeons and, and the endoscopists are worlds apart. I said, this guy's at 90. The worst case is he'll just spill some of his bile into his colon. And they said, no, 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 we got to take his gallbladder out, which really almost killed him uh, because this was an open cold cystectomy. And he spent three more months in the hospital after this. But uh, we were able to uh, completely resolve his clonic obstruction and avoid an anostomy. So, um, I'll then delve into ERCP. So all of you know what ERCP is. It's something that we do all the time for various uh, bile duct um, disorders. Um, but this is an interesting case. This is a patient that had a Whipple done. Most of you hopefully know what a Whipple is, where the distal bile duct and the head of the pancreas are resected. And this was resected for large ampullary adenoma. Uh, what's interesting about this case is is that well, we got to get rid of the uh, the, 
Uh, down. Oh, there we go. There we go. There? Yeah. Okay. So, 73 year old woman um, had her Whipple, and um, she, had a, she had intraductal adenoma. Like a lot of these adenomas at the papilla, we take out endoscopically. This particular adenoma um, was one that extended well into the bile duct, which was led to her Whipple operation. So she had her Whipple operation performed, and she did well. Uh, she had adenomatous tissue into the bile duct. Um, and um, this, this case was from 2014, but she presented several years later with dilated bile ducts. And uh, she actually went to, Ch she lives in Chapel Hill, which is funny because I take care of her now, but at the time she was referred to me because they had performed percutaneous transhepatic angiography and identified this large uh, filling defect um, that was in the, uh, at the hepatic bifurcation. So they really sent her up to say, what can we do? This lady has indwelling drains, uh, surgery to take out now the hilum of the liver would actually be uh, very, very difficult to do. Here's a cholangiography again with this large filling defect um, at the bifurcation, prior endoscopies, um, they couldn't reach this area. But what we did was we were actually able to go through her percutaneous tract initially and do an endoscopic, introductal endoscopic ultrasound and find that this tumor really was based only in the mucosa. So we said, okay, we're dealing with what's called a hyler biliary papilloma. Now the question is, can we actually reach uh, to this area because it was a very long altered anatomy case. Uh, and so we, we took a, as I recall, we took a, uh, a colonoscope, as you can see here, and um, we actually passed guide wires through the liver down into the, uh, to the limb so we could actually grab the guide wire and pull ourselves up so we could get the endoscope all the way up. So here we are now through the biliary enteric anastomosis and we have this huge polyp that is sitting at the bifurcation of the right and left hepatic ducts. Uh, you're seeing a uh, percutaneous drain here. And so normally we don't resect polyps out of the uh, intrahepatic bile duct, but we decided we were going to go ahead and, and resect this endoscopically because based on the ultrasound, uh, it was all mucosally based. Uh, part of it literally was cold snaring, removing that with baskets. But you're again, in, we're inside the bile duct here, um, as you can see, and removing polypoid tissue. And you'll see in a second, now we're above it. So now you're in the intrahepatic bile duct. So we're in from the inside. Uh, we're in the intrahepatic bile ducts. And now we're uh, applying... Um, some argon beam plasma coagulation to uh, try to thermally ablate this. And you can see now we're sitting at the hepatic bifurcation. One of these is the right side with a guide wire in. This is the left side of the biliary tree and we're sitting at the hepatic bifurcation uh, with a complete resection of a tumor at the hepatic hilum. Here's the follow-up cholangiogram. You can see injected, there's no 
obstruction the scope is in. And um, she actually went home that day. Well, she went back to the hotel that day. That was done as an outpatient with no percutaneous drains for the first time in about six months. Um, and actually what's interesting is now I inherited her back because when I moved to Chapel Hill, uh, they put her back on my schedule for follow-up. And now she's more than five years out um, and doing extremely well with very, very little residual disease uh, from, from her, um, from her um, hyalur tumor. Again, saving her a very, very large uh, operation if it was technically feasible to do an operation. So this is an area, the next thing I'm going to show you is very near and dear to my heart, and that is uh, endoscopic necrosectomy, uh, something that Tim worked on uh, with me at, um, at Mayo, and that is in the old days when patients had pancreatic necrosis that required an intervention, it was a large surgical procedure, open abdominal operation to get to the retroperitoneum associated with fistula and these types of things. So this is a patient that has, and I'll stop this in a second, this huge, uh, large uh, collection which uh, contains, as you'll see, a large volume of necrosis that extended all the way down into the pelvis. Uh, this patient had uh, gastric outlet obstruction, uh, couldn't eat, and so this is her second procedure. Her first procedure, we were able to make a hole through the back wall of the stomach, uh, and now we're driving through with the endoscope from the back wall, through the back wall of the stomach, into this area where there is dead uh, pancreas. And you can't simply, uh, in general, just place uh, stents in there because you've then infected this area uh, and left this solid debris that needs to be evacuated. So one of the methods is to uh, drive into these cavities um, and literally do what's called a direct endoscopic necrosectomy by pulling this out. Uh, in rarely do you get a case like this where you actually can get almost the entire piece out of the patient. And normally we don't take it out of the patient unless we really want to get a good picture of it, which we did here because normally it just passes through. But this actually measured about uh, 14 centimeters in length uh, and we were able to completely get the retroperitoneum um, clear of necrotic debris, replace stents, and I think that was the second endoscopic procedure. The third one was simply to remove the stents. Again, um, a method that we can employ um, now, really changing this from almost always a, uh, a surgical disease to at least a endoscopic and or uh, percutaneously um, treated uh, disease. So the next thing I'll go into is a, a, a gallbladder drainage, which is actually something that has evolved from, again, purely surgical to percutaneous to endoscopic. The case I'm going to show you was actually one that we did uh, before we started doing ultrasound-guided uh, drainage of the gallbladder internally, which I'll talk about in a second. But this was a patient that was referred to us, and I'll stop this, who had cholecystitis, uh, was a uh, purely non-operative candidate. There wasn't a surgeon that had so many comorbid diseases that they didn't want to take her gallbladder out. And she was left with an indwelling percutaneous drain 
to uh, decompress her gallbladder because once you've done that, uh, you can't just usually you can't just remove the tube. The patient will redevelop cholecystitis or obstruction. So uh, she said, "Is there any way you can get me free of this external drain?" So the first thing we did was this is actually a, a, a routine part of it. We started out with an ERCP to clear out stones out of the bile duct. That was the easy part. But then we thought, well, what if we put an expandable metal stent from the gallbladder to the outside world and completely evacuate all the stones out of her gallbladder? So what we did is we left the, um, uh, the there goes the percutaneous drain that came out. We left a guide wire in the gallbladder and you can see this is actually a, an expandable uh, metal esophageal stent that we're deploying from uh, the outside world, if you will, deploying it here from the skin that goes all the way back into her gallbladder as a conduit to uh, try to evacuate any of the stones from the gallbladder. And so we're actually going to drive an endoscope uh, from the outside world uh, into the gallbladder. Again, this, this gallbladder is filled with what we think is probably um, at least a couple hundred stones. So the next step of this is what you're going to see is um, actually relieving the obstruction. So we pass the guide wires and catheters uh, through the stent um, and um, and you'll start seeing we're flushing, injecting, and pulling. And eventually what we, what we find is here's an endoscope uh, driving into through, through the stent. And we're inside the gallbladder, as you can see here, uh, from the outside world. And we start basketing and removing stones. But actually what's, what's interesting is uh, it turned out that most of these stones that we got out, uh, we got out, we essentially cleared uh, all of the gallbladder except one stone that was left in the, uh, the cystic duct. So we basically went in, here is the cystic duct as it enters into the common bile duct. The rest of the gallbladder is completely devoid of any stones and we were able with some difficulty in actually using a snare to remove this stone from the cystic duct, which was the last stone. We said we will not leave any stone unturned. Um, and we're actually able to completely remove uh, the stents and inject through this catheter. As you can see, we ended up, when we pulled out that last stone, it was large enough that it uh, dislodged uh, the stent, which was really not a problem. And here's uh, the cystic duct, the gallbladder, is now completely devoid of stones, and uh, we were able to remove the external drain. Um, here's the track where the stent was, and this percutaneous track closed in a, within about a week, and the patient, uh, again, being a very, very elderly patient, uh, to develop those number of stones over a long period of time uh, would be unlikely, and she ended up dying uh, later with no, for, due to underlying uh, disease process with no uh, percutaneous drain in place. Now, our approach to gallbladder drainage has changed since that time. We now have abilities 
this is something that Tim and the group here does is endoscopic ultrasound. There are a variety of endoscopic ultrasound scopes that allow us to visualize structures that are immediately adjacent to the GI tract or within the GI tract and then puncture into uh, adjacent structures such as the gallbladder. And with the development of newer types of expandable stints that actually allow structures that not, not, are not ordinarily uh, opposed to each other, you can actually connect two lumens together uh, with these what's called luminal opposing stints under endoscopic ultrasound guidance. Um, so for example, um, we can now puncture and see the gallbladder from the duodenum or from the stomach and place stints like this to go directly from the gallbladder into, uh, again, the stomach or the duodenum to drain the gallbladder. And so I'll present you a case that is not only gallbladder drainage, but it was a patient actually who presented, it's, it's rare for patients with pancreatic cancer to present simultaneously with biliary obstruction and gastric outlet obstruction. So when the tumor grows large enough, obviously, in the head of the pancreas, it can uh, completely obstruct the duodenum. But it made it impossible for us to even reach the papilla to do an ERCP because of this obstruction. And uh, the patient um, could not eat because they had complete gastric outlet obstruction. So uh, this is a 60-year-old man who presented with simultaneous biliary obstruction, had an ill-defined pancreatic head mass compressing the duodenum. Um, and you can see this is the, uh, the CT scan of the mass. This is the endoscopic view, which really the duodenum was obstructed. So now you're seeing with endoscopic ultrasound uh, the gallbladder that's containing sludge, and we puncture the gallbladder with a needle, and we are the reason we're draining the gallbladder is we're actually using the gallbladder as the conduit to decompress the biliary tree. Because with a patent cystic duct, you can anastomose the gallbladder uh, to the duodenum and decompress the bile duct and the entire biliary tree through the gallbladder. So what you saw was puncturing the gallbladder, uh, placing a stint in the gallbladder, and then we were actually able to then place a stint. Let me just stop this for a second. That goes, so we relieved his gastric outlet obstruction by placing a self-expandable metal stint across the stricture after, this is the other stint, here's the air lining the gallbladder. So we both decompressed his biliary tree through the duodenum, and then with an overlapping stint, uh, we uh, were able to relieve his gastric outlet obstruction. Uh, he, was this, he was done as an inpatient because he had gastric outlet obstruction. And amazingly, this is the kind of patient that I would have thought, let me go back, would have survived maybe six or eight weeks. This guy actually survived 14 months with uh, uh, chemotherapy and came in toward the end of his life with one episode of biliary reobstruction uh, from tumor that eventually invaded the cystic duct, which is sort of the conduit for the rest of the biliary tree uh, for decompression. That was sort of his end of the life event was an episode of cholangitis. But 14 months 
without further either endoscopic or surgical or other intervention for both his biliary obstruction and his duodenal obstruction. And in the past, that would have required both a uh, surgical decompression and or percutaneous uh, as well as surgical bypass of the stomach. Uh, which leads me to the next thing is that is now we're creating anastomoses endoscopically uh, between the stomach and the, um, uh, the duodenum or the jejunum and between various loops of bowel. And so uh, the next case I'm going to show you is a patient um, who had gastric outlet obstruction um, related to acute on chronic pancreatitis. Uh, we've now done uh, 14 of these uh, gastrojejunal um, uh, anastomoses. So this is a 48-year-old woman who had uh, acute and chronic pancreatitis with inflammation, um, ongoing hepatitis, uh, and complete gastric outlet obstruction. Um, and she had multiple hospital admissions for obstruction related to a duodenal stricture and wanted a, um, a non-operative approach at least to see if we could temporize. So you can see the stomach is very distended, fluid-filled. You can also see that there's small bowel, uh, basically duodenum leading to the ligament atrites that's in very, very close continuity to the stomach. So that's what allows us now with these luminal opposing stints to be able to connect uh, two loops of bowel, but you need the right device so that you don't get a leak uh, between these two. So there was the CT scan, as I mentioned. And so the way we did this, and the, this is actually, as you would imagine, not anything that's uh, standardized. Oops, let me go back, sorry. Um, is uh, we were able to put it to, with difficulty, pass a standard endoscope uh, into the, the bowel below the level of the obstruction. So what you're seeing here is that we had placed a guide wire near or beyond the ligament atrites. We, over the wire, with no endoscope, we placed a balloon as our target so that we're in the stomach with our echo endoscope and we can see this balloon as our target to connect and anastomose these two structures together. So again, it points out how close the stomach and the duodenum are um, in this uh, particular situation. So what you're seeing is I, we have an EUS guidance. Um, we had the balloon here, and we're actually going to puncture. We actually punctured the balloon by hitting it with the needle through the stomach, past the guide wire um, into the small bowel, and then again, we ended up deploying one of these uh, luminal apposition stints. So here you can see deployment of the stint on the gastric side. This is uh, going through from the stomach into the small bowel, uh, creating a gastro. Uh, in this case, it would be a gastro duodenal anastomosis endoscopically. We didn't necessarily have to balloon dilate, but we balloon dilated uh, this stint. And then you'll see in a second, we're looking down into the small bowel uh, through the stint 
after having created a gastro um, entero um, or gastroenterostomy um, in this patient who then actually was able to eat uh, uh, normal. You can see injection of contrast uh, through the stent just to confirm that the bowel, which goes antegrade in this direction, um, and this patient actually uh, ended up resolving all the inflammatory changes around the head of the pancreas. Uh, we know, however, when you remove these stents that the gastroenterostomy uh, does not stay patent. Unfortunately, um, over time, the gastric wall uh, closes. So this is not the finale of the talk. This is just the last case I'm going to present you, and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, but I think this is uh, very interesting. So this is a case that I presented at um, our last conference, and that is uh, drainage of a mycotic aneurysm after aortic stent graft placement. So this is a patient, as you'll see, um, which was a very, very uh, uh, elderly gentleman, 84-year-old man with many, many comorbidities, uh, history of an endovascular stent graft placement five years prior for a thoracoabdominal aneurysm. And he presented to our emergency room with abdominal pain, uh, tachypnea, fever, and hypoxemia, basically uh, septic. And he had a CT scan, which will show you that they thought was probably an infected aneurysm. Now, these aortic stent grafts can get late infections. Um, and um, I'll show you an illustration of what we're dealing with. His blood cultures grew. Bacteroides fragilis, and his surgeons uh, basically said, look, for us to treat this, we're going to have to do an open chest abdominal exploration, uh, remove the stent graft, and do a revascularization. The mortality of that operation for you is a three-digit number. Um, and he said, can you find me somebody that might be able to do something with a lower mortality history. So uh, basically, I'm not quite sure how they knew that I could potentially do this. Because uh, my nurse practitioner came down and said, uh, we got this consult, and uh, they want us to see if we can drain this. And uh, my partner, who was in the room, stood up and said, this has Todd Barron's name written all over it, and he walked out. <laughs> so, um, so what you're seeing is, the aortic stent graft here, and what is a thickened aneurysmal sac, uh, because again, the, 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 the stent graft does not ablate the aneurysm. It just diverts the flow. So you still have an aneurysm around the stent. And you can see it on this uh, CT, and this is his more traditional cut. Here's the aortic stent graft. Here is what we think is the infected aneurysm, because there was no other source of infection, and the esophagus is immediately adjacent to this. So we thought, okay, can we drain this infected aneurysm into the esophagus? So you can see here the mycotic aneurysm sac. Uh, this is an illustration that the graft, again, excludes it, but it doesn't get rid of this area, which uh, essentially can become presumably hematologically uh, contaminated at some point because this was years later. So what you're seeing is an endoscopic ultrasound view, 
And this is the, um, what we think is the, well, what we know is, is the aneurysm, and we expected that it would be more consistent with fluid, but in fact, it's, it's probably filled with old blood um, that is now infected. Um, and so what we did is, um, you can, here's the aorta. So if you rotate the endoscope, you can see the aorta and the wall of the stent graft. Uh, again, here's the aorta here. And um, I, I remember telling the anesthesiologist, have you ever seen anybody bleed to death immediately out of their mouth? And he said, no. And I said, this could be the one. Um, and so we punctured into the aneurysm sac with a needle. As you can see here, again, here's the aorta back here. We aspirated uh, gross pus uh, at the time of the procedure. Um, and so obviously we felt like this was clearly the source of his uh, sepsis. And so what you're gonna see is deployment of a, again, one of those luminal opposing metal stints is being deployed right here under endoscopic ultrasound guidance. Um, here's the other end in the esophageal lumen. So you have the stint deployed from uh, the lumen into the, uh, into the esophagus. Uh, and you can see this gross pus uh, and uh, uh, particulate matter here. And then we balloon dilated the stint and you actually can see the aortic stent graft here through uh, the stent. So then we thought, uh, so what do we do with this now? We've got this patient who we have a stent in the, through the esophagus into the aorta. At what point do we take this out? So he was markedly clinically improved. Uh, 12 hours later, he got a follow-up CT scan at 48 hours um, that I'll show you that shows the luminal opposing stent uh, into the aorta adjacent to the, uh, the stent graft. You can also see it uh, on this reconstruction of the stent. And so we decided that four days later, uh, maybe it's a good idea to just get this device out of there because uh, it's sort of served its purpose. Uh, so, of course, we had to make, you know, of course, a good video. So we pulled the stent out. As you can see here, here's a hole in the esophagus, uh, and we can actually drive the endoscope into the excluded aneurysm sac, as you'll see here in a minute. And you can see here is the uh, aortic stent graft that we're sitting outside into the, uh, uh, the aneurysm. And we were able to aggressively uh, irrigate this uh, copiously with saline um, and then, as you'll see in a minute, what we decided to do is to clip close uh, the hole in the esophagus um, with, a, with a series of uh, standard uh, endoscopically placed clips. Uh, we got a barium swallow the following day, which showed no leak, and the patient started eating. Um, he was discharged 11 days after the procedure. I've actually seen him back. He's now a year uh, later, he's receiving uh, antibiotics still, and he's walking, talking, um, and still alive um, um, and doing clinically well. So I've only touched on some very, very interesting cases, of course. In the world of therapeutic endoscopy, uh, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but we're now into not only just small bowel enteroscopy 
and reaching into the small bowel, but doing therapeutics in the small bowel. Um, Dr. Rothstein and others have been involved in the early stages, and now they're commercially available, uh, very, very functional endoscopic suturing devices that go over the endoscope that you can do intraluminal suturing, obesity management. Um, there are a variety of things of not only managing bariatric surgery complications, but a whole host of endoscopic bariatric procedures that uh, are likely at some point to replace surgical bariatric procedures. And there's this whole world of what's called third space endoscopy, which is that we're used to at least luminally working on the mucosal side. On the opposite side, of course, is the, either the peritoneum or the adventitia. And there's the submucosal space, which is really a potential space that now endoscopy can be driven into the submucosal space and do a variety of endoscopic therapies, including what's called endoscopic submucosal dissection. So actually dissecting on block uh, either early cancers or very, very large polyps and various things, or treatment of achalasia and uh, doing poor oral endoscopic myotomy um, and treating not only achalasia but uh, spastic disorders of the esophagus. So really, the, um, the world of endoscopy has, um, has I think, remarkably um, expanded. So in conclusion, flexible endoscopic therapy has advanced greatly in a short period of time. Uh, the possibilities for therapeutic endoscopy uh, continue to expand. Really, it's, part of it is back to what you can imagine and what we can do and what we're going to be doing in 15 or 20 years um, is really almost limitless. And the patients that right now most likely benefit from some of these really uh, extreme advanced endoscopy procedures are often the most ill and those who would not tolerate traditional surgical procedures. But having said that, those patients um, that are getting our aggressive endoscopic therapy are also avoiding larger um, surgical procedures often and uh, percutaneous procedures, which while effective, um, decrease the patient's quality of life because of the need for external drains. So the future is very bright, and I feel very fortunate to have uh, visited at Grand Rounds at the right time in my life to be able to be influenced, to be able to, to share these things with you. So thank you very much. Todd, before I open it up for questions, I just wanted to give you a token of appreciation. Thank you. This is uh, in memory of Hans Fromm, who was our colleague and uh, delightful uh, teacher. So we want to give you Thank this you. to take back in the long I appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. So we can open this up for questions. I might start with the first one, which is that you do things on the outside of the envelope. Right. And how do you present this to your patients? Right. When you're going to get consent for a procedure that isn't a necessarily standardized procedure. Right. What do you, how do yeah, you that, that's an excellent question is, um, is well, first of all, um, we are slightly more protected being in a university setting. I'll just preface that by saying patients come to a lot of the university settings because they know that they didn't have options where they were. And that sets a little bit of the stage of the patient saying, 
what can you offer me that nobody can offer? But having said that, still within the institution, you have patients that literally you could say, well, this is experimental endoscopy because it hasn't been proven. Um, so I sit down with patients and I say, look, these are the options. This is what I can offer you. And we lay out the options on the table. And frankly, sometimes I say, look, I've never done this before, but these are the tools that we have available to us. This is what I've done before in techniques that I think are either similar or borrowed, that I think there's success. And we come to an agreement that this is something that they would accept as something that they want to uh, go forward with. And then we need to document that discussion. So these are cases where you really have to have conversations, of course, with the patients and conversations with your colleagues who you really need their support. So you, if, for example, if you try this and you have a complete disaster, you need a backup plan. Often that backup plan is not something that you can provide to the patient, it's your colleagues. So it, in the best cases of the scenarios are you have a team of people that say, okay, we're willing to undertake this with the risks, with the possibility that we can help bail you out. Uh, the case I showed, the last case, there probably wasn't a bailout, uh, but on the other hand, uh, a patient who has a very, very poor option in the first place, that's probably an acceptable uh, method. But I think that's an excellent point that you make is that there really has to be a lot of informed consent up front to the patient and an honest discussion of what you can and can't do and what are all the risks of what you potentially are going to undertake. Uh, <clears throat> curious about how involved the process is from like taking the imagination of something and getting it to yeah the yeah great question so so part of it is um, there are people like uh, Dr. Rothstein who come up with ideas of things that may not even be available yet uh, I'm more of what you would call the MacGyver type right so I take things that are uh, that are available to me at the time that may not have or often don't have the application that I'm going to use them for, but they are available to me. So once something is FDA approved, uh, you as a physician can use it off-label. So it's, it's a little bit different concept of he's got this great idea for a device that's never been used. We can't do that, right? That has to go through a lot of phases get either some sort of clearance, FDA approval, before you can use it. I'm more of, okay, we have these things, but we're using them for other things. So the jump might not be as great when coming up with a creative way to use something that you already have to your disposal if it's available by FDA and it's on your shelf or it's in somebody else's shelf. Um, but I think that's an excellent question because I, again, I'm more of a let's do it, fix it now with what we have, but we need people like, you know, Rich who really can think of, okay, we don't have this, let's build it. And that process takes a long time, as he can tell you. It takes years. Do you work with colleagues, say, in cardiology who might have devices yeah. approved for cardiac devices, yeah. for example, that right. stent? Right, right. So th th I have actually gone to cardiologists over the years and borrowed various things. I've actually taken angioplasty balloons 
um, and use them that are that are so much smaller that you can get them through otherwise impassable strictures. Um, and I've gone to cardiology for amplatzer, uh, atrial septal occluding devices to try to close fistulas. And I think that's one thing that we forget is that there are other disciplines that have got some of these things that we haven't thought of or have yet that we can potentially borrow and bring in. So in fact, yes, I've done that on numerous occasions is try to think what other discipline has something that potentially could be used for what we do. Yeah. So where, what's the status of endoscopic gastrojejunoscopy? Yeah. So the question is, where, where we are we with endoscopic gastrojejunoscopy? I think it's still, um, so for, I think for malignant disease, expandable metal stints are good. They're not great. They're good. Um, and we're not quite aware, I think this is so reproducible that we can do it. But if it can be done safely and effectively, and we figure out the exact technique for palliation, it probably is going to be a better palliation than a stent because we know surgical gastrojejunostomy is better than stents uh, for longer-term palliation because you're putting healthy tissue together away from the tumor. Uh, so where we've used them more is for benign disease because stents in general are not a good option for benign disease, as you know, because expandable metal stints we have for the duodenum are uncovered. They become embedded. You can't remove them, and if they're covered, they tend to just migrate out. So uh, for benign disease, if it's something temporizing, I think it's a decent solution. Let me give an example. We had a guy who had a fall and had a duodenal hematoma with complete uh, obstruction that we were able to put a gastrojejunostomy in. Uh, four months later, his hematoma resolved. We pulled it out. Everything was open. But it's not a good long-term fix for benign disease, and it doesn't stay open. I think that we will figure out how to do that more reliably and with a more long-term, because I think once you pull these devices out, the anastomosis closes because the stomach wall always closes, no matter what. That's why when you remove a peg tube, the gastric wall closes, so we're not there where a device can stay in permanently. So I think that we're sort of in this um, phase of, you know, where is it going, like you said. Um, I think we're going to eventually get to anastomosis, whether it's what we've done here or it's really truly going to be uh, with suturing devices and create true anastomoses. But I, we're not quite there yet for it to be an everyday sort of thing, I, I think. I know there are more questions. I'm conscious of the time, so please come up and talk with Todd after uh, we break up. Thank you.